Good morning, Crosspoint. Cross Come grab, grab a seat, seat and stand, stand with us in worship. here before we get into the second song i just want to ask is there have has there ever been a time where you've needed help or where you feel like you've needed 
to be changed and you're in dire need of help. Okay, you've got that in your mind where you needed help. In that time, did you bottle it up and hold it in your arms and say, this is my burden that I want to care and I want to fix it myself? Or in that time, did you turn to God and say, change me? In that time, did you say, I need your help, Lord. I need your love. So in this next song, I pray that if you struggle in those times to turn to God and say, I need your help, I just pray that this song and these words will change your heart. And in, the, in those times, you will learn to turn to God when you need it most. My 
Psalm 91, 1 and 2 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Father, as we give an offering, as we continue in singing, that is what we continue to declare to our own hearts and that we declare to you, Lord, that you are our trust, you are our refuge, you are our fortress. I thank you that we can find not only eternal rest, but earthly rest in your wings, in your shadow, in your presence. I thank you that you're present with us now. I pray that as we give, that you would take what is given and use it to expand your kingdom, to spread your name. Father, thank you for being so generous to us through the giving of your Son. We love you. We declare our trust in you in this moment. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.
you, Lord, this morning. I just pray that the words that Dave speaks this morning will change our hearts, Lord, that when we leave here, Lord, we don't just forget about it, that we apply it to our lives and we live by your word. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. This morning, uh, we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus, but before we get there, we're going to remember uh, our Lord and Savior through communion, through the Lord's Supper. Jesus made two references to baptism and, and those times didn't refer back to his water baptism, but they referred to his impending death on the cross. One of those is Luke 12, 50. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And this baptism, again, wasn't the water baptism that we'll look at today, but it referred to his death on the cross that was upcoming. A death that would bring suffering and pain that we can't imagine, a death that Jesus knew he would not escape or avoid, but rather one that he came not only to live the life that we were called to live, but die the death that was ours to die, to pay the price for our sin, to die for our redemption and the forgiveness of those who trust in him. Jesus also referred to his death as a baptism in Mark 10. James and John were asking Jesus to, to, uh, for places of authority in his eternal kingdom. And we want to sit at your right hand. We want to sit at your left hand. And, and he says this to them in verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? The cup that he refers to there is God's wrath. And only the Son of God's perfect sinless sacrifice would serve as an acceptable offering to cover the sins of mankind. It's only through trusting in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross that we are saved from God's wrath. As Christ followers, when we take communion, we are reminding our own hearts that we are fully trusting in Jesus' work on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin. We are not trusting in our own ability to overcome sin, our own power to break the chains of sin. Instead, we are declaring in communion the truth of 1 John 2, 1 and 2, which says, My dear children, I'd write this to, to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice 
for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In 1 John, he is encouraging Christ followers to not remain in sin, to not be okay with ongoing sin in your life. He's reminding that as God's people, we walk in the light of Christ and not in the darkness of our sin in our past, but then he also reminds us that when we do sin, and we will sin this side of heaven, that when we do, we don't try to run away and clean ourselves up and make ourselves presentable to God and then come back to God, whatever cleaning yourself up looks like. Instead, we run to the Lord. We, we don't assume that we've been kicked out of the family of God in that moment. Instead, we run to the family of God. We run to our advocate who laid down his life, the righteous one who gave us his righteousness on the cross, the righteous one who died for our unrighteousness and our unholiness. So this morning, as we reflect on communion, be reminded of the suffering, the distress, the wrath that Jesus endured on the cross. Be reminded that he willingly laid down his life for people. Not reluctantly, but willingly. Be reminded of his great love that was, that was displayed on the cross. Be reminded of his atoning sacrifice, not only for our past sin, but our present and our future. Be reminded that of his righteousness that is now given to the Christ follower by faith and by grace. And because of that, we now reject ongoing sin in our lives because our identity is new. We've been given a new identity in Christ. So if our volunteers could come begin to pass out the trays, that'd be great. Uh, the bread and juice are on top of one another in the two cups, so make sure you get both cups, and, and we'll, there'll be a time for you to be able to pray and worship and be present with the Lord in this moment, and then we'll take the bread and the juice, the elements together as a unified church family. So let's uh, take communion now. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the juice. Father, thank you that we have an advocate in your Son. And thank you that he is righteous and he is holy. And he is full of truth and full of grace and mercy. I thank you for the continual reminder we have through the Lord's Supper that when we do sin, we come back to the advocate. We come back to the righteous one who died for us. Thank you that he is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, that his death covers our sin. And thank you that for the forgiveness and the new life that we have in Christ. Spur us on this morning in our love for you, in our walk with you. Thank you that you first loved us and thank you for the display of that love that we see on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning again. We're thankful uh, to be together this morning. Our first impression teams, uh, volunteers are going to begin passing out the connection card book booklets. If you're new with us, fill out the gray section. That would help us get to know you. If you're a regular attender of Crosspoint, 
uh, then and you have updated contact info, let us know that as well at the top. Uh, if you did not get a connection link email from us this last Wednesday, we changed up our system, and so it might be sitting in your junk folder. And so we don't want that to sit in the junk folder. Uh, we want that to sit in your inbox. And so uh, be looking for that if you've missed it. The next step at the bottom of that card, I want to remind you of Discover Crosspoint. Our next membership class is coming up next Sunday after church. Uh, having lunch, child care is available, both of those. And so we'd love for you to be a part of that. We've got 24 folks, I think, signed up so far. So if you're newer to Crosspoint, that's the next step for you. Or if you uh, were in the season right now where we're asking current members to go back through the class, this is a great opportunity for you. As you're filling those out, I want to share some Crosspoint family news as well as a couple upcoming dates for you to be aware of. One family news item is congratulations to Zach and Kenzie Roskop, who got recently married. And so we rejoice at that and we would encourage you to continue to be praying for them in their new marriage. Also be praying for the Crosspoint men who are coming back from man camp right now. And so uh, be praying for them that what God has done in them while away would continue when they come home and continue when they go back to work or enter their homes again. So be praying for them. Word is on the street that Justice Lapp is watching online. And so, hi, Justice. Nice to see you. Um, so he is, uh, for those of you who are like, what, what, just, what just happened there? Um, Justice Lapp is a cross-pointer who is serving in the uh, Army and been away with basic training and all that goes with that for a while now. And so uh, be praying for him as he continues to follow the Lord. And then a couple uh, dates. Good Friday is coming up in less than two weeks. And for that service, we are partnering up with Eureka Bible for that service. And so uh, the, we're going to be meeting at Eureka Bible at 7 o'clock on Friday. I'll be preaching. Their team is going to be leading worship and we'll be taking communion together as a body of Christ. And we love the picture of that, the kingdom mindset that it is. And so we'd love for you to be a part of that. And then Easter, 10 o'clock here, uh, 10 o'clock uh, Sunday morning on Easter morning. So we'd love for you to be inviting for that service and be in prayer for that service. That not only would God uh, expand the kingdom and spread the good news here, but also in other local churches. And so be in prayer that God would be at work on that Sunday morning. If you have a Bible with you on your lap or your device, get to Matthew. We'll be in chapter 3. This is our fifth week in a new series called The Rescue Begins. If you haven't gotten the resources for that back at Guest Connections, make sure you get that today or next Sunday because after next Sunday, we'll be returning the extras to Lifeway. If you're a Christ follower, how do you publicly identify that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? How do you let the world know that you're trusting in Jesus for your salvation and that you're following him as Lord? In high school, I wore a silver chain uh, with a cross Looking back, I'm not even quite sure if I fully understood the meaning of that chain or meaning of the cross, but that's what I wore. Around that time frame, Christian t-shirts became really big, and so I had this uh, friend who played basketball, and he had a t-shirt that was uh, a, a picture of a basketball court, and then it quoted Psalm 100, enter his courts with thanksgiving, and kind of like, I'm a baller, and I'm a Christian, and th that kind of thing, and you see that around uh, today, and that's, that's fine, you can wear those t-shirts. I've, I've got this um, Jesus fish ichthus ring that I've had for a lot of years. It reminds me of my identity in Christ. Sometimes it just um, is one more thing to put on in the morning, and I don't think about the significance of it every single morning, but there have been times where it's been meaningful to me, being, been reminded to me that I'm a Christian. And that ichthus is a picture of 
it's a symbol from early Christians that they used, and it, it means in Greek the, the meaning is Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And so it was a way for persecuted Christians to communicate with other persecuted Christians of, hey, I'm a Christian, and in this picture of a fish, it was a way to identify that you're a Christ follower. Nowadays, people put these ichthus on the back of their car, and uh, listen, if you do, that's cool, but please drive for the glory of God then, and not the glory of self and man, all right? If you're an angry driver, if you're like perpetually mad at everyone else, like you're flawless and everyone else is flawed, and you're that angry one, or you're in the left lane, you got to get to the right lane, and you've got an ichthus on your car, please take the ichthus off, all right? It's just a terrible testimony for the glory of God. So take it off or redeem your driving habits, one of the two, two options. Uh, if you're a Christ follower, how do you publicly identify that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? And this message has nothing to do with bumper stickers or neck necklaces or ichthuses or rings because those things come and go. And sometimes kind of the Christian subculture can be a bit silly at times as well. But in Scripture, there are two lasting commands, two practices that Christians since the days of the New Testament live out and are used to publicly identify as Christians, as those who have repented of our sin, we're believing in the good news. And those two practices, the one is Lord's Supper and the other is communion, or the, the other is baptism. Yes, Scripture talks about that, would argue that our way of life, our words, our evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, our witness, all those things are also identifying us as Christ followers in a public sort of way, but the practices and commands of remembering the sacrifice of Jesus through communion and being baptized as a believer have so much to do with identity. We often talk about baptism being going public with your faith. I believe that today's text and the story of Jesus being baptized is really timely for many of you because you're a Christ follower and yet you've not followed the Lord's command when it comes to baptism. I believe that following this morning that there will be uh, many of you who will take that step of faith. Some of you have been pushing this off, hesitating, dragging your feet for years. Others of you are just kind of new to the faith, and this is your next step. I believe this, this spring, I truly believe that, that God is at work, and if we would have humble hearts and obedient and just kind of tender hearts before the Lord, that we would be able to be celebrating lots of baptisms on various Sundays, celebrating God's work in the lives of those who call this church home. So last week, Pastor Eric preached from Luke 2 and uh, being around the time of Jesus being 12 years old. But after that story, Scripture doesn't detail a lot of his life until the beginning of his public ministry. And his public ministry begins with, not with a message, not with a healing. It begins here with a baptism, with his baptism. And we're going to look at that in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophets, prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
So John the Baptist began his public ministry before Jesus did. He's doing the same thing that the Old Testament prophets did, and that is to point people to the coming Messiah, bringing an awareness of sin, an awareness of God's holiness, an awareness of God's grace. He's calling people to repentance and faith. He's preparing the, the way for Jesus' public ministry, his preaching ministry, which will be the same thing, repent. It's the same common call throughout all the Old Testament, in John the Baptist, in Jesus, in the disciples, in the book of Acts, in Peter, in Paul. It's the same message that we carry with us to this day as a New Testament church, calling people to repentance. And we see it here in John the Baptist in Matthew 3. So what is repentance? It's a heart change that leads to a directional change. It's a heart change that leads to a belief change. To repent means you change your perspective. To no longer disagree with the Lord, but agree with Him and His Word. To change your focus from self to the Lord, from walking in darkness to walking in the light of Christ. Repent is an action word. An action that takes place in your mind and heart that results then in outward actions and inward beliefs that are different than they were before. Repent is not feel really sorry about what you've done and then go back to what you've always done. I think sometimes that's how we approach a Sunday gathering. It's almost like an Old Testament uh, temple, tent of meeting kind of gathering. that We, we're, we live this really rebellious, uh, sinful life Monday through Saturday, and then we walk in on Sunday and we take communion and we kind of get ourselves right with the Lord. But no actual inward change happens. We just kind of go right back to what we did last Monday, tomorrow. And we live this vicious cycle and it's religious activity, but it's not gospel transformation. It's happening from the inside out. Feeling sorry for what you've done, yes, it's biblical. There's a godly sorrow there, but that's, it should lead then to a repentance, a changing of your mind and your heart. Repentance is to allow the Lord to change your mind. And then that will lead to a directional change, a belief change. Repentance is this posture that we take not only when we come to Christ, but it's the ongoing posture of a Christ follower. So I repented in January 1993 when I got saved. But I continued in that posture from that moment on because I wasn't suddenly free from remaining sin. So I repent when I sin in my anger. I repent when I haven't loved my wife in a Christ-like, sacrificial, selfless way. I repent when I've been uh, lazy and apathetic and not disciplined or working for the glory of God. Or when I've been fearful rather than faithful. Or when, when I've rather been greedy instead of generous. Or when I've walked by sight instead of by faith. When the Spirit has exposed idolatry in my life and on and on and on it goes, right? It's a continued posture of a Christ follower. We have, sometimes we assume that repentance, that's when I came to Christ. But now, no, it's, it's the ongoing posture of a Christ follower. In those moments, in those seasons, I don't want to remain in that sin, but I want to confess it. I want to agree with how God views it and how he's called me to live out my new identity that I have in Christ. Repentance is an action word that starts in the Spirit's work in my heart. And that will result in outward change. But it's always inward first. Because if all I do is try to change the outward behavior in my own strength, if I fail to ask the Spirit of God to change my heart first, then lasting gospel change won't occur. And John the Baptist is going to call that out in the Pharisees 
here a little later. Repentant people, through the Spirit's work in their lives, recognize that we haven't loved God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we haven't loved others as God has called us to love them. That we've fallen short of not only His glory, but how He's called us and designed us to live for Him. Repentant people, again, because of the Spirit's work, come to understand that because of their sin, we deserve the consequences of that. And the Scripture is very clear that the consequences of that is death and eternal separation in hell. Repentant people have placed their complete faith in Christ and His finished work on the cross and resurrection. John preaches in verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning, change your direction now. Change your mind about who the Lord is. The Messiah is coming. The King is coming. Get ready for Him. And here, this is His first coming. But now we as the New Testament church, we say repent for Jesus is coming again. It's a call to respond to the news that the King of Kings is coming again, so prepare. It's a call also to join the kingdom of God and to be a part of answering the Lord's prayer that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So don't just prepare your hearts and your lives, but join the work of the King of Kings for such a time as this, in the time that we've been given. So you've got the scene that's developing here. People from all over the region are coming out listening to John preach and be baptized, and, and Jews were recognizing that they were not saved by obeying the law, or they were not saved by their ethnicity or their, um, or their family heritage, their religious activity, but rather they are saved through repentance and faith. They're saying, I'm not trusting in anyone or anything other than the coming Messiah to save me. And you see that baptism is associated with the confession of sin. There's this humility about the people. I mean, what a sight this must have been. Just imagine yourself there. Imagine the people descending upon the Jordan, confessing sin, idolatry, uh, greed, hatred, a lack of love, pride, selfishness. Just descending upon this moment, this gathering. For the Jews, typically confession of sin was around the formal annual day of atonement where all Israel would confess sin. But this scene is personal. This is personal, but it's not private. This is not private. This gathering is far more private than this one right here. It wasn't just this formal religious ritual either. It was person after person, repenting, preparing for the coming king. Charles Spurgeon said this related to the scene. Apart from the acknowledgement of guilt, it would have been a mere bathing of the person without spiritual significance. Repentance was leading to action. The action of confessing sin, the action of being baptized. Actions that are reflective of hearts that are being transformed and changed by the Spirit of God. But, but now we're going to see the tone change here because the audience is going to change with religious leaders showing up in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. That's an opening line for you. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we, love, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. And they found their identity in keeping the law of Moses. Their identity was in their outward obedience, but their hearts were far from God. They held a religious tradition, for example, up as the same authority of God's word, or the same authority of Scripture. They often neglected the spirit of the law for aspects of outward obedience. So, for example, on the Sabbath, they'd say, well, we're obeying the Sabbath. Well, I, I see that you're in distress. I see that you're hurting. I see that I could help you, but I'm obeying the Sabbath, and so I'm not going to help you. Well, you're neglecting the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself, but there you're placing that outward obedience up as greater than actually loving your neighbor. Law would be greater than love. And it led to the spiritual pride which Jesus continually called out throughout the, throughout the Gospels. And here John the Baptist is going to call out. John is saying, you appear anxious for the Messiah to come, but your hearts are still far from God. And so you need to be warned. The judgment of God is coming. The Jews would have believed that the wrath or judgment was coming. They just wouldn't have believed that it was toward them. It was toward the, they would have assumed it would be toward uh, the enemies of Israel or the Gentiles, but not them because they keep the law. They obey all the rules. They were blind to their self-righteous confidence that only others needed to be right with God, not, not themselves. John is saying the wrath, the judgment of God is coming. You won't escape it because you're a religious leader or because you're involved in a lot of religious activity. He warns them to flee from wrath. When you flee from something, you respond to it immediately. You get out of there. You're not dragging your feet. You're moving from A to B. You're not kind of zigzagging. You're changing your direction. You were walking this way thinking, ah, and then you see something up ahead and go, ah, wait, I don't want to walk that way. I want to walk this way. And so you flee from that impending judgment in this case. So for the Christ follower, we're saying, I don't want to bear the wrath of God towards sin. So I will place my faith in the Son who bore that wrath for me, who drank from the cup of judgment when I could not so that I would not have to, who laid down his life for you and me. So the person who is saved is fleeing to repentance. They're not dragging their feet on repenting. They're swift to confess, agree with the Lord, and walk with other believers in the light. Because a believer recognizes that, that at the core of ourselves, we need the Lord to change us. That at our core, we are sinful. This is the, what John is referring to in in verse 10, when he says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. A tree only bears good fruit if the roots or core of the tree are good. So John is not saying that we are saved from judgment through a bunch of outward good works or fruit in our lives. He's saying that in the analogy of a tree, for example, an apple tree only bears good apples when at its core it's been changed and when it's healthy and when it's not sick. He's getting to the heart of the matter here, literally the root. So when a person truly repents, there is this internal 
change and heart and mind change that leads to an outward fruit, a fruit that is keeping with repentance, this outward life that is keeping with an inward life that is being transformed by the grace and power of God. See, the Pharisees were all about trying to show everyone how great the fruit of their lives were, but at the end, their core, their heart, the root of their life was still far from God. It was still dead and lifeless. And so for us who claim the name of Christ, we must be continually reminded that God is after our hearts. He's seeking to transform us from the inside out. He's faithful to finish what he has begun. And if you're here and you don't know Christ yet as Lord and Savior, to become a Christian does not mean that you clean up the outside of your life or that you get really good at hiding your sin. You get really good at being discreet about your sin. That's not what a Christ follower is. And if that's what you've seen, I'm sorry. And let's talk about what a real Christ follower looks like according to Scripture. Because a Christ follower is one who, at their core, at their heart, at their root, are being transformed by the grace of God, by the power of God, by the Spirit of God. So John is preparing the way for Jesus' ministry and message. And you hear him in verse 11 remark that he's not even worthy to carry the sandals of the coming king. He's lifting Jesus up here. John the Baptist's ministry was never about himself. It was always about Christ. There's this humility about John the Baptist, which we as Christ followers in 2017 could learn a lot from. It was always about Jesus. It was never about their self, his, his uh, self-righteousness or his ability to, uh, to baptize people. It was always about the coming king. It was always about Christ. And so into the scene of sinners confessing, being baptized, religious leaders, the brood of vipers, being warned to flee from judgment, into this scene Jesus comes in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So baptism is for sinners, and yet Jesus is sinless. Why in the world is he getting baptized? This is why John was so surprised at Jesus approaching him to be baptized. John's got to be thinking, wait, wait, I must have misunderstood something. You're the coming king, and you want to be baptized? Speak into my good ear, because I, I'm not going to baptize you. He's, prevent, he's hesitating on this, because he's thinking, well, this is for sinners who need repentance not the Son of God. John was baptizing those who needed to repent. Jesus had no sins to confess. John's baptism was for those who, who were turning from their sin and were ready for the coming King, who were confessing allegiance and love to the coming King. And yet John knows Jesus is sinless. And Jesus said to him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So you've got someone in authority here, Son of God, permitting this, allowing this to happen. You see the humility of Jesus submitting to baptism. 
John would not have even considered this, but Jesus is instructing him, do it, John, do it. I'm permitting this. I'm commanding you to do this. For God's plan to be perfectly fulfilled, it was necessary for Jesus to be baptized. So this is not one act that fulfilled all righteousness. This is one act along a life of uh, sinless, uh, loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, a perfect life that fulfilled all righteousness, and a baptism is part of that. So why was Jesus baptized? First thought, Jesus was baptized to identify with sinners, you and me. What a wonderful Savior to identify with us and not be far off. The sinless God-man to be identified with sinful people who he came to seek and save. Who had, he had all the righteousness and all the holiness and he took his place among this scene where there was all sorts of unholiness and unrighteousness. He identifies with us in his baptism. So it's not a display of repentance, it's a display of righteous identification with sinners that is pleasing to the Father. Second thought, Jesus was baptized to demonstrate obedience to the Father. Last week, 12-year-old Jesus told Mary and Joseph, I, I need to be in my Father's house. I need to be about my Father's business. And you see that throughout his entire life. Whatever the, whatever the Father says, I say. Whatever the Father does, I do. I'm going to obey my Father. And you also see there at the end of that chapter, this moment where the Father speaking identity over a son. You see this relationship that the son has with the father as the son, as the father speaks over him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The last thought as to why he was baptized. Jesus was baptized as an outward first step to his public ministry. His ministry that was, that's in the same line of Old Testament, New Testament church, uh, what we are as a church his ministry that is to seek and save that which is lost. The first step to his public ministry of, of all sorts of personal ministry of preaching and healing and saving and redeeming and forgiving. The Holy Spirit descends upon the Son like a dove in a way that could actually be seen by the people. And, and now he's, in a sense, come out of hiding. This is public ministry now in a very public scene. And so then the toward, toward the end of his public ministry that began with his baptism, Jesus then commissions his disciples, a charge that remains to us in this day. He charges them in Matthew 28. He says this, starting in verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So this is not a suggestion. This is Son of God with all the authority commissioning his people. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So a disciple of Jesus will publicly identify as a disciple through baptism and through obedience to God's Word. Not the only two ways, because we also talked about the Lord's Supper earlier, but one, or there's, there's two ways listed there. Specifically with baptism, you've got this symbol, an act that translates globally. It translates to every person, every nation throughout all of history. This one act 
that we're doing here in Africa and Asia and Europe and South America and Antarctica, probably a chilly one there, Australia. It's one act, it's one symbol in the same line, the same example of Jesus Christ. This is not man-made. This is God-ordained. It's an action that Jesus modeled for us. It's, it's an action that has so much to do with our identity in Christ. The Apostle Paul talks about baptism in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. The picture of going under the water and back up. And he's saying, in a sense, that as you stand in the water, you're identifying with the cross, with the death of Jesus Christ. And when you go under the water, you're identifying with his burial. And when you come back up out of the water, you are identifying with his resurrection, the new life that we've been given in Christ. That you've repented of your old way of life, you're walking in a new life now. A life that you found in Christ alone. That your identity was once in yourself or in your sin, but now it's in Christ alone. Baptism is personally and publicly identifying with the death and then the burial and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are preaching the gospel when we're getting baptized. We're preaching the gospel, not only through that symbol, but through our testimony. It's a public testimony to the personal and inward change that Christ has done in your life. The word baptize in the Greek means to dip or plunge or immerse. In some sense, baptism is a picture of drowning. That apart from the grace of God, the flood of God's judgment would overtake you, similar to what we saw a couple times in the Old Testament. But by God's grace and mercy, through faith and through Christ alone, you've been brought up out of those judgment waters, so you've been able to cross the Jordan on dry land. You've been, the, the Red Sea parted, and you escaped while the Israelites were overtaken or while the Egyptians were overtaken. So you've been able to escape that judgment because the Son took your place, and now you have new life in the Son. So this is why a person does not baptize themselves. They don't get into the tub or the river or wherever you are. They don't kind of dip themselves and then pull themselves back up. They do it because salvation, you can't pull yourself back up. You need this external force. You need the grace of God to come and rescue you and pull you out. To pull you out of the muck and mire. To set your feet on the rock. This is why in your own strength, you're not pulling yourself out of that tub. That you're relying on someone else to do that. As your pastor, as an under-shepherd serving under the authority of of a chief shepherd. Here's one thing I will never stop doing. It's encouraging and calling you to walk and live by faith, to align your life with the Word of God, to follow in the example of Jesus Christ. I will never stop doing that. Like I said in the beginning, I think there are many of you, I don't think, I know there are many of you, who this is your next step to be baptized, to celebrate. And Matthew 3 speaks to a lot of the reasons or excuses of why you might have hesitated on this. Some of you say, well, I'm not far enough along in my faith to get baptized. Or I don't know enough. Or I still struggle with this sin or that one. And what you're saying is, 
is in a sense you're saying, I'm not perfect enough. Nowhere in Scripture, I don't care about your church tradition, nowhere in Scripture do you see that baptism is the culmination of someone's faith and maturity in Christ. It's not the crowning moment. It's not the pinnacle of their sanctification. It was the beginning. In the book of Acts, they got saved, and then they got baptized, and then they continued to grow. That's, that's the other pitfall we can do. We got, I got saved, I got baptized, I joined a church, and we just stopped growing. That's a whole other message. That's a whole other ditch we can fall into on this. But Acts, they continued to grow. In Matthew 3, the people came with repentant hearts, confessing sin, but it does not read that they confessed their last sin. They went under the water, and they never sinned again. It doesn't read, it doesn't say that. And nowhere in the book of Acts do you say that, do you see that? It was the beginning, not the end. Remember, in baptism, you're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says that you're not saved by your own efforts, that you're not saved, you're not, you don't have the ability to overcome sin on your own, that you're trusting in and dependent upon Jesus Christ and His work on the cross and resurrection. And then, as a church... We're seeing that testimony. We're seeing you preach the gospel through that symbol and through your words. And we're saying, look, there's a brother or sister in the Lord that I'm called to live alongside and encourage and spur on and love. Some of you say, well, baptism isn't salvation, so I don't need to. And you're exactly right that baptism is not salvation. The thief on the cross was not baptized, and yet Jesus promised uh, that he would see him in paradise. So it's not salvation. But it is publicly identifying with the Savior who laid down His life for you and the Lord with whom you follow and are seeking to become like. So if you were baptized as an infant, if you were walked through confirmation at some point in middle school, if you came to faith later in life and you have yet to get baptized, then our loving call to you is to follow the Lord's example now as a believer in Jesus Christ and get baptized. In the New Testament, baptism by immersion was the example. And so as a church, again, our desire is to reflect the New Testament. Following that example and that command. Some of you, typically because of your family heritage or your upbringing, are hesitant to get baptized because you know it's going to cause conflict. You know it's going to cause division in your family. But in Luke 12... Jesus makes it really clear that sometimes to obey the Lord, it's going to bring conflict and division among earthly families. I believe there's a way to walk through that in a God-honoring way that loves people, loves the Lord, not in an arrogant, self-righteous way. There is a way to walk through that, but, but when, we, when we place the potential of family conflict up greater than obedience to the Lord, then this is an idol. This is an idol. It needs to be cast aside. We need to obey the Lord in this. Again, there's a way to do it in a humble, God-honoring, God-glorifying way. But because of a potential conflict, that doesn't pull us away from or keep us away from obeying the Lord. Some of you are hesitating to get baptized simply because you, uh, of speaking in public or getting wet in front of a bunch of people. One of, uh, one of the prayer requests that somebody shared on January 1 
I don't know who it is, so I'm praying that uh, God is answering this prayer for you right now. But your prayer request was that God would give you the courage and boldness to, go, to, be, to be baptized. I pray that um, the Spirit of God is doing that right now. Public speaking is not on everyone's uh, top three fun things to do list. Like Six Flags, speak in public. You know, it's like, usually that's not your list. I'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy is what the stats all say. But imagine the scene in Matthew 3. Read Acts 2 this week. Imagine that scene. This uh, personal thing playing out in a public realm. We can help with the public speaking. We can help you navigate that. Some of you are afraid of the emotional response that you'll have when you get baptized. Last time I checked, it's okay to have emotion about a Savior who rescued you, pulled you out and loves you and saved you and set you on a new direction, a new path in life and has eternity set aside and you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. I, I think it's okay to have emotion with that. If you're just like stone cold and maybe we'll hold you under a little bit longer. I don't know. <laughs> I cry. No, we're not. No, that's, the other, that's the other side of the ditch we don't want to do. But I get it. My, my wife has, and she would tell you this, that you put a microphone in her hand and tears flow. I don't know. It's like some sort of formula. Okay? I get it. But again, our fear of what other people will think of us is an idol then. It needs to be cast aside because that idol then is keeping us from obeying the Lord and following in His example. What we often miss in the subject of baptism is how God uses the symbol and act of it, not just in the life of the person being baptized, but in the community of faith that they are a part of. So we tend to make this all about us. What about me, 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 me? Well, baptism builds up the church. It builds up our faith. It's a testimony to those who are watching. Of, hey, there's somebody who's preaching the gospel with this symbol of baptism. There's somebody else that God has rescued and saved. Moms and dads, this is a way to make disciples of your kids, to pass on your faith. Students, this is a way to pass on your faith upward to your parents. When it comes to baptism, I think sometimes we, we overthink it. We overanalyze the step of faith. And by no means am I saying that we should overcorrect and treat it lightly and flippantly. Otherwise, I probably could have finished up this message a while ago. But it's not the only step of faith or obedience that you'll take as you follow the Lord. This is a first step. It's not the last step. Our way of life publicly identifies us as Christ followers. But we don't skip over this, this one, nor do we place it up as this culmination or pinnacle of our sanctification and maturity in Christ. So baptism is publicly identifying with Christ. It's also a reminder of the identity that we have in Christ. Matthew 3, the father speaking identity over his son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. If you're in Christ, you're a son or daughter of a heavenly father. And because of Christ, he is well pleased in you. And when you're baptized, you're reminded of that of the identity that you've been given by the grace of God. In Christ, you are loved, saved, forgiven, made new, set free from the power of sin. 
The shame is removed from your past and on and on, the New Testament tells us. Baptism is a picture of being in Christ, of the new identity we now have in Jesus. The Father loves you, and He's faithful to finish what He has begun in you. So let's not wait any longer to celebrate that reality, that truth through baptism before God who loves you and has saved you, before a church family that loves you and is alongside you. And before people, friends, family, those in attendance that day that need to hear the good news of Jesus, Jesus Christ. They need to hear the gospel displayed in baptism and shared in testimony. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we are so grateful for your love for us. I pray that you would spur us on to obedience. That I pray for those of us who have been baptized and we kind of look at this message and go, check, done with that. Father, spur us on to a greater growth and dependence on you. Help us not to fall into the Pharisee mindset of, of uh, we, di- we did that and so we're greater than or we did that and we have no more growth to happen. I pray that you would spur us on to a deeper maturing, a, a greater love for you as your people. And for those here who this is one of their next steps, I pray that Spirit of God move them. Move them to walk by faith and live by faith. I pray in advance for those, those days, those moments, that not only would it be significant for those being baptized, but for those of us in attendance, that the church would be built up, that our faith community would be built up, and that those who are watching and listening that day that don't know you would come to know you because of the testimony that was shared, because of the picture of another life being saved, and not only saved, but then sent on a mission to be a part of your kingdom. Father, we pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We love you. We trust you. Pray this in your name. Amen. If you want to talk about baptism, I got no card for you to check or anything. Um, I'm six foot four. I'm pretty easy to find in a a crowd. I'd love to talk about it. Um, And uh, feel free to email, call, Talk to me afterwards. Meet somebody new before you leave. God bless. Have a great week. See you next Sunday.